Well, hello, everyone. Another episode of Leadership Now today with me, Dan Pontefract in the house. Holy smokes. I call him Dr. Strategy, actually. Dr. Alex Osterwalder. Alex, great to see you. Short bio, then we'll get into this. You are the founder and CEO of Strategizer, one of the world's most influential strategy and innovation expert companies and people. Oh, my gosh. You're a leading author, entrepreneur, and in-demand speaker who's worked and changed the way established companies do business and how ventures get started. You're ranked number four with Eves. We'll get to that. In the top 50 management thinkers worldwide by Thinkers 50. You're a visiting professor at IMD. Alex is known for simplifying the strategy development process and turning complex concepts into digestible visual models as we will see today. Together with his good pal, E. Pinure, he invented the business model canvas, value proposition canvas, the business portfolio map, a whole bunch of other things. They are practical tools trusted by millions. I emphasize millions of business practitioners from leading global companies around the world, the likes of Microsoft, Coca-Cola, Nestle, MasterCard, Sony, Fujitsu, 3M, it goes on. Now, Alex, Strategizer, this company that you've co-founded, is an innovation powerhouse providing online courses, applications, tech-enabled services to help organizations and its leaders effectively and systematically manage strategy growth and transformation. What else can we say? Well, you're Dr. Alex. You hold the doctorate uh, from HEC, if you are Francaise, in Lausanne, Switzerland, and is a founding member of The Constellation, a global not-for-profit organization that connects local responses to global issues around the world. Oh my gosh, we could go on, Alex, because you are just a rock star. Um, let's start simple first. And I know that's hard for both of us to do because your thinking is so worldly, but you define business models, Alex, as, quote, how you create, deliver, and capture value. So that's an important process, but uh, this show is called Leadership Now, and there's some leadership that gets in the way of the now. So from a bit of a business model process perspective, Alex, like what do you think uh, enables the how you create, deliver, and capture value business model definition from happening? And then, I guess, just generally speaking, what's really getting in the way these days? What's getting in the way of people rethinking their business models, coming up with new ones is just habit, right? You, you, know, you grow you grow up, if you want, in a leadership role in a specific maybe industry, company, and you do things the way things are done. So it's much harder when you're an expert, when you've been doing things for a long time, you got really good at it, to throw away those old business models. Now, the problem is a lot of business models are expiring, like a yogurt in the fridge. I love yeah, that line. <laughs> the pharmaceutical industry, you know, their business model expired and they're slowly getting towards reinventing themselves because innovation is not about R&D or technology alone. Actually, there's a much bigger space there, which is new value propositions and new business models. It's just that most business people, many business people do not know how to think about business models. Pretty good at technology innovation, product innovation, you know, competing on price, <laughs> these red ocean strategies, if you want. Yeah. Rethinking business models, that's generally the, the domain of entrepreneurs, disruptors, and now slowly also of established companies. Those, you know, that were startups like an Amazon or an Apple, or, you know, increasingly bigger ones like Ping An insurance companies, they reinvent themselves. But that's still rare. rare. Why? Because companies are getting better and better at what they do, which means anything that looks different, corporate antibodies are gonna kill. So new business models have a hard time emerging within 
an established organization, not just big ones, small ones, same thing. Any company that exists has a hard time to reinvent itself, much harder than new products and services. So it reminds me a little bit, I suppose, of Dr. Martin Seligman's work, right, who invented many, many moons ago the term learned helplessness. And it seems to me that you probably in your work come across a fair bit of learned helplessness where the organization's, I guess, culture and the way in which it operates is stuck and and. Bear with me if I uh, am poking a bear here, but stuck in a sort of Michael Porter Five Forces 1985 thinking, <laughs> and here we need more strategizer thinking. So help me unpack that. What the hell is going on, Alex? So, you know, many of the leaders were taught at business school, did MBAs, and nothing against MBAs and so, but some of those concepts are just not relevant anymore. So Porter's Five Forces or, you know, value chain, that was great stuff, but that's 1985. You know, today you're not victim of forces. You can be the force or at the very least the fast follower, right? And, mm. and the great examples of the big innovators, they created in industries. You know, ask yourself, Apple, what industry are they in? It's very hard to say because it's not about industry. It's about the business model as the unit of analysis. They do hardware, that's where they earn money, but they do software. Now they're big in services. They're an entertainment company. You know, same with Amazon. Mm -hmm. Can you classify them? You can't, right? It's the modern conglomerate, but not a, a collection of companies like GE used to be. It's a collection of business models that have very strong synergies among them. And the unit of analysis is the business model. Now, products and technology live, it, live within that unit of analysis, but these are companies that really reinvent themselves. Again, not just technology. And if you look at Apple, the evolution is amazing. Right? It's not about five forces. No, they created the new spaces. They went from hardware, you know, from computers towards music players. That was a shift because they were mm. buying rights of music, reselling them. Then they went to the iPhone, which is different business model because all of a sudden, you know, they were connecting um, um, developers of applications with the users of the iPhones. That's a, a platform business model that became very powerful. And then they start to, you know, add in that platform the the content to it and the services. So business models are much harder to disrupt. And in some cases, you can't even launch a new technology or so without the right business model. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's just more dominant than ever before. This has always existed, mm -hmm. but now it's becoming inescapable, inescapable. So you, you recommend in many of your uh, writing and your speaking, your consulting, I assume, uh, that Leaders need to be thinking ahead. Yet, Alex, uh, their leaders spend so much time in the weeds, the mundane, the firefighting, the infighting, the competition, the customer fires, the politics, the silos. Yeah. Like there just seems to be things in the way of what you're suggesting. So from the ones that do and are doing it well, what strategies can leaders employ such that they are indeed thinking ahead and becoming you know, a uh, a groupie of strategizer and Alex Osterwalder. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we don't need that, but at least <laughs> we do need a new type of leader. We call this, you know, in our team, we call these the entrepreneurial CEO, entrepreneurial leaders. Could be the entre entrepreneurial CFO, chief financial officer, or HR. And what they all have in common, they understand that there are two big worlds in any organization. And actually for this, I am going to go to a little bit of a, a visual thing here. 
take- as, as I fully expected, Alex, it's not a session with you without some scribbling and some visuals. So we're going to divide the world of the corporation into exploit, managing the existing, and explore. The mm-hmm. academic word for us is the ambidextrous organization that is good at managing and at the same time is world-class at inventing the future. And you know what? Every large company used to be a startup. It's just so long ago that they forgot how that works. <laughs> so 99% of the focus in many companies is on exploit. But what you get when you have an entrepreneurial CEO, an entrepreneurial leadership team, is they spend maybe 40% here and they spend 60% here. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that the minimum here should be 20%. If the CEO doesn't spend 20% of their time on innovation, on exploration, on the future, the future is never going to matter in that company. They're just going to get better and better at managing the existing. But now, it's not just about distinguishing these two worlds. It's understanding how they're different. And that's what these leaders are really good at understanding because they do both. So on the right-hand side, when they manage, they know uncertainty is relatively low. We yeah. know the business model. We know the customers. This is stuff we plan and execute. When it comes to the future, they admit we do not know what's going to work, right? <laughs> They're not going to have, oh, this is my pet project. You know, I'm the CEO. I'm going to pick the, the next future. No, they know nobody's going to tell the CEO their baby's ugly. So they actually invest in many, many different projects, in teams inside the company and let them test and iterate. And they make small investments up front because they know a large portfolio with many small investments is going to produce some that are going to find the right way. We make follow-up investments only in the next ones. So that's how we invest When uncertainty is low, we analyze and we make big investments. It's all about thinking, right? Because we know the field, like there there we can maybe do play comportance by forces, right? Because it's more stable, the industry is defined. On the left-hand side, thinking is not the right solution. It's making many, many small bets and then only investing in those small bets that can bring evidence to the table. Evidence that the customers have a challenge. Evidence that they have a budget, some willingness to pay. And I always like to remind people, a spreadsheet and a PowerPoint deck is not evidence. That's a fantasy made explicit, okay? (laughs) So we should never invest in PowerPoint decks and Excel spreadsheets. We need to have them, but we need to de-risk them and actually find that evidence. So what these entrepreneurial leaders do is they even ask different questions and make mm. decisions in a different way on the right-hand side and left-hand side. On the right-hand side, traditional world, are we on time on budget? Are we you know, executing the plan? That's okay. But if you ask that question on the left-hand side, you're gone. Like That's not how you need yeah. to ask questions. You ask, what are we learning? Is this a stupid idea? Because it looked great on paper, but customers don't have the budget. And in some cases, you'll see customers are going to say, if you do that, I'm actually going to kill my business. I can't do that. So on the left-hand side, we learn, we iterate, we kill a lot of projects. So we reallocate resources from those ideas that look good, but aren't. After three months, we invest that money elsewhere. So it's a completely different way of working. And here's the big thing I learned. And then I'll shut up a little bit because I'll get excited about this stuff. We always kind of frame this as, so people ask me, where... Does this live, and in particular, where does innovation live? 
Mm-hmm. And I say, yeah, it is an organizational challenge thing. You do have things in the org chart, but number one, and this was a big breakthrough for me just very, you know, short time ago, maybe a year, two years ago, I realized it's a mindset thing. At one point, the CEO or any leader or any team member might be in an exploit context. Mm-hmm. We are expanding this. We're, we're building a new supply chain. We're expanding the sales force. There you think exploit. But then maybe five minutes later, you're in a new project and we're talking about, you know, the next value proposition that we want to launch or how we want to transform the business model. I need to flip the switch and immediately start to understand. I'm an explorer. I'm going to ask different questions. I know the teams are in a different process. I'm going to use different KPIs. And I'm going to support the teams in a different way. So the same person needs to toggle between these two worlds. And that goes for senior leaders, but also for team members, right? Mm -hmm. Many innovation projects are staffed with some professional innovators, but with people come from execution. The moment they step into an exploration project, their attitude needs to change. The culture of the team needs to change. And it's not a value judgment. It's just a different context. So you work differently. Do you see what I mean? So these two worlds are different and they need to live in harmony, right? They shouldn't be at war, which they often are these days because they're not synchronized. They're not harmonized because people don't even realize how these two worlds are different. And I think that's the key where you've brought up the point of being ambidextrous, both leaders and team members and everywhere in between, right? It has to become an ambidextrous organization ultimately. So let me let me follow it up with this book and the question I have related to you. There's two actually. You say invincible companies. Um, a there's three things. They constantly reinvent themselves, Alex. Uh, they compete on superior business models, and C they transcend industry or business boundaries. So I'm with you. That makes complete sense. But again, kind of our thread of conversation right now is a little bit of the impediments that are getting in the way. So. So what are the secrets then, or maybe the key parts of the attributes that are required for that invincible company to deploy those three pieces? I'd say it all starts with the top. And don't get me wrong, innovation is bottom up and top down. Mm -hmm. But So the projects come bottom up, the new business models, they come bottom up, the challenges, you know, that are seen with customers, that's bottom up. But you can't build an invincible company without top down. And the top down is not about the CEO and the leadership team picking the ideas. It's creating an environment where we know we're world-class at execution, but at the same time, we built a system in parallel. We don't need to replace that execution system. That needs to to stay because not everybody should be an innovator. We need to build in parallel a world-class exploration system. And that can only be done and taken seriously if the CEO and the leadership team spends at least 40% of their time on innovation, 40%. That, what does that mean? Not picking the ideas, but working on culture, meeting the innovation leaders, having in the agenda of the board meeting, 40, let's say 20 to 40% of the time committed to reviewing the innovation portfolio, which projects are, are picking up. The incentive system mm-hmm. needs to be partly exploit and partially explore. Only the leadership team can do that. And I always like to say, when the CEO doesn't spend time on innovation, guess what? Nobody's going to take it seriously. So it starts with that. But that doesn't mean the CEO picks the ideas, right? right. <laughs> the ideas come bottom up. The leadership team is a system builder. And that unlocks everything, everything. 
So then it's probably a really good segue, Alex, because uh, later on in the Invincible Company book, you know, you've introduced, um, you know, with the help of Tenday and Dave, you know, the the culture map. And so what I thought I'd do is play your game uh, and let me um, let me do this, Alex. Guys, and so we'll, love it. You, so see, you just you just you, you got to do what you got to do for a guy like you. So <laughs> the culture map from the Invincible Company basically means, right, that there are three key components, as you can see here. And for uh, listeners, they are the outcomes, the behaviors and the enablers slash blockers. So if outcomes are the positive or negative consequences that result from people's behavior, the behaviors are ultimately, you know, what do they say? How do they interact? What patterns do you notice? And then the enablers and the blockers are the levers, right? Take us through this. Take us through where maybe it didn't happen in Nokia or Kodak and take us through why it's happening in the Amazons or Apples of this world. Yeah. So the big one is the reallocation. Let's start with the number one, the one that I mentioned, like a broken record. But on the bottom, when leadership you know, invests time on innovation, that's an enabler. It's taken seriously. It's seen as an important, you know, cultural aspect symbolically that that that's a big thing. Yeah. The other one is also the availability of resources for innovation. And I'm not talking R&D, right? R&D is technology and science. And that's great. We need it, but it's generally used to improve the existing business model. I'm talking about business R&D. So on the bottom line there, enablers of innovation is an institutionalized budget for business R&D. Mm. When that exists, when that exists, innovation will happen. And in some cases, I mean, they will have different names. At Amazon, is just the willingness to in, you know, invest without certainty in long-term ideas. Guess why you know, Amazon Web Services happened? Because there was a willingness to invest billions of dollars before it was clear, entirely clear, that this was going to be a multi-billion dollar kind of profit-spitting machine, right? So that is typically an enabler. Then, okay, let's look at the, at the behaviors you want to see. If the teams in innovation, you know, write business plans and don't experiment, but present PowerPoint decks, and the decisions are made based on a PowerPoint deck, but not based on evidence. We have the complete wrong behavior. That so no, behavior like, is good and no, so no small bets are being made. It's not iterative. You're, there's no exploration really. It's just jump to exploitation in essence. Exactly. So it's almost like saying, okay, we have one type of decision that fits all our challenges. We're going to use the same way to make decisions in exploit and explore, because in exploit, you know, when you're running a business. It's okay to show a deck. Here's what we thought. We know the, you know, the parameters. Here's how we plan to execute. I need, you know, a million, 10 million, 100 million to execute this plan. Here's the return on investment. That's great. That's an execution. But if you use the same way of presenting, the same way of executing the project, you're dead in innovation. What you're going to get when you write business plans in innovation, you're going to maximize the risk of failure because you're going to finance a fantasy and execute a fantasy. So business plans are actually the killer of, of innovation. They <laughs> maximize the risk of failure. So in the startup world, you don't see business plans anymore. You see decks that change within weeks at the beginning with based on what the, the leadership team learns in a startup when they hit the market. Yeah. And then the more mature it gets, the, more, the less the deck changes. So that doesn't exist anymore, business plans, in the startup world. In the corporate world, you'd be surprised how many companies 
still want teams to pitch a business plan with a deck and an Excel spreadsheet that says, this is how we're going to see, succeed. This is how big the market is. And we make a fantasy look like it's going to happen. That means maximizing your risk of failure because we're going to invest in one idea and we're going to put 100 million in it and we're going to burn it. And it does exist a little bit in the startup world, right? Remember Quibi? They yeah. burned 1.7 billion, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but you have VCs that say, and this is the exact thing that we should you know, understand in companies, some venture capitalists say, you give a team too much money, they're at risk of failure because what are they going to do? What does any team that has money do? In particular, scientists and engineers. They're going to build something. And probably they're going to build something that looks great on paper, but that turns out nobody wants. So <laughs> you need to de-risk. And that's where the iterative approach comes in. And like we like to say, fail fast. And so it's it's commonly accepted. It's just that the processes in companies and the culture don't allow you to do that. So yeah. while we talk about it, companies don't look like that. Well, I've been in the audience when, you know, you've already alluded to one of my favorite lines of yours, business models expire like yogurt in your fridge. Yet, although I get that, and then you can think about BlackBerry and Hawaiian Airlines, like so many like major examples where they got stuck in their old thinking. And so we inherently, we know that yogurt expires, milk expires, right? Like we, yes. we know this where it's common sense, but if I'm yeah. thinking out loud a little bit here, Alex, um, there is sort of some, again, that inhibitor. And I think the myopia of leaders tend to get in the way. And so my question for you really related to all this is, is, is innovation corp dev now? So what I mean by that is, do you think that companies who have become, who are always, they started out a startup, everyone did, I get that. But then they get to this point where almost like the inertia sets in and corp dev M&A is like now the strategy. That's how we hit our EBITDA numbers. That's how we hit the analysts and so on and so forth. So tell me a bit about that dichotomy and what you, you recommend or what you observe. So I think, you know, you take M&A, it's a great tool. And I'm not, I would never say you, you should, you need to build everything internally and you need to grow everything internally. Absolutely not. But what you need is an exploration engine and every company will have their own way of building that exploration engine mm -hmm. and use all of the tools testing and iteration, and then grow it inside, uh, mergers and acquisitions, sometimes licensing some stuff and then doing the other parts internally. But all, that all only works is when you have institutionalized business um, budgets for business R&D, which means exploring value propositions and business models. Because if you do fast exploration and you learn about an arena, you can make better acquisitions. If you mm -hmm. don't understand the space, you're actually going to make crappy acquisitions, and then you're going to have the whole problem with acquisitions and culture and so. So you need all you need to use all the tools, but first and foremost, you need to understand how exploration works, and that's not the case in many companies. And the way you make it work is institutionalized budgets, and you reallocate money from the current growth engines, from the execution, you know engine yeah, yeah and logitech did this really well so when bracken darrell took over as ceo really clap it's a really interesting entrepreneur ceo who was never an entrepreneur per se he was a manager but he's an entrepreneurial ceo and that's what he infused into into logitech when he came in but here's what he also did he 
slowly reallocated 70% of resources away from the dying business, computer mice and your peripherals, without firing people. It was not drama because he was doing it consistently, investing into new arenas. And he calls this trees, plants, and seeds. The trees were the peripheral business are falling over soon. And <laughs> moving 70% of the resources from the trees to the seeds, to the plants and the seeds, like computer gaming, because Logitech wasn't big in computer gaming, which is a completely different peripheral mm. business, right? And they did that. And if you look at the classic story, everybody talks, this gives this example of, of Kodak. Well, let's take the counterexample, Fujifilm. Yeah. Why did Fujifilm succeed while Kodak didn't? Guess what? They dramatically reinvested the resources from analog film into new arenas. And the most fabulous one was cosmetics. How does a, a company that does analog film invest in cosmetics? Well, guess what? The chemicals that they know how to manipulate and the patents they had on that is very similar to aging skin, but they were willing to aggressively reinvest. So while it looks easy sometimes to say, oh, they went from this to that. Well, Kodak didn't do it because while you're still making money and seeing, yeah, it's going to, it's going to, you know, we're going to die at one point, but you do, you have to do this proactively. That's why, you know, you, business models will expire like a yogurt in the fridge, but you don't know. You have an expiry date on the yogurt with business you don't know. So the only recipe is to constantly do business R&D so that you'll create new growth engines while you're still making money with your core businesses because they're inevitably going to die. Mm-hmm. And Rita McGrath talks about the transient advantage, right? She also says, you know, there's no such thing as competitive advantage anymore. Same theory, you know, Michael Porter is a bit of a different generation. <laughs> I have a lot of respect because what he did is the foundation of stuff like the business small canvas. But there is no such thing as a long-term competitive advantage anymore. Today, the transient <laughs> advantage you create, the culture of innovation you create, that's your competitive advantage. The ability to admit you're not invincible, you're going to die, and that's why you're frantically reinventing yourself, that's at the core of culture. That's what Amazon had. And Jeff Bezos always used to, like, used to say, oh, you know, we're going to die. We just want to push out the date of when we're going to die as a business. <laughs> and look what happened. They were reinventing themselves again and again and again because they didn't feel invincible. You become invincible when you know you're not and you act like you're going to die. Well, in the, in the case of, of uh, Fujifilm versus Kodak, in Kodak's case, obviously, you've got a couple of gentlemen who are working in the basement on their own as a side project, making their own bet, and then going up with the Kodak executives and saying, hey, look, we figured out digital photography. And they were like, talk to the hand. We have 90% market share uh, film and 85% market share of cameras. We're never going to get into digital photography. Go away. They had the patent and then we know the rest is history. So that culture, that leadership culture actually is a pretty good um, exposition here in terms of what Kodak did wrong as just sort of your, your, your canvas case study here. But here's, here's the question for you, not related to Kodak. So you, you talk about three key requirements, I guess, enablers to really manifest and materialize with this culture piece. And so they are, uh, make sure I get these right, leadership support, organizational design, and innovation practice. So those seem to be quite key. Yet again, not every single organization is listening and heeding to your uh, wisdom and advice. So it's a bit of a what is it and why? 
So this is changing more dramatically than ever before. And we see it mostly in the industries that are, are starting to be under huge pressure of business models expiring. Mm. So if you take Strategizer, um, one of our core client segments is the pharmaceutical industry. Right. Well, why? Well, guess what? Because there are actually a couple of interesting things going on. The blockbuster drugs, that traditional model doesn't work anymore. Yeah. But there's also a different reason, a surprising one, and we can actually think of Kodak for a second. When Kodak invented the digital camera and they brought it to market, guess what they did? They did innovation suicide because the digital camera killed the analog business model. Exactly. So the innovation was great. Customers wanted it. They they sold a, they sold a ton of digital cameras. Unfortunately, the digital cameras <laughs> killed their business model. Now, here's what's happening in pharma. Think of you, you come up with a one injection cure that's going to cure the patient. So 20, 30, 40 years of medication is going to fall away. Well, how are you going to charge for that one injection? You used to make like millions from one customer. Yeah. And now you, you are you going to be able to charge 1 million for one injection? Of course not. So you're going to have to think of different business models for technology innovation, science innovations, to even bring these things to the market. So it's it's actually an ethical challenge mm. where pharma companies are facing these things. We have something we'd love to bring to market, but we also know if we bring it to the market with the old business model, we're killing our business, like literally yeah. innovation suicide, like Kodak with digital cameras. So there's a, there's this new thing where we have to come up with new business models if we do not want to kill our business models. So self-disruption is one or going into new arenas like um, Fujifilm did with uh, cosmetics. This is going to be normal. So we are seeing a shift. This was not so 10 years ago. We're now seeing this in food and beverages um, happening. We're now seeing this in packaging. We're seeing it in several different arenas. Other thing, you know, sustainability is becoming a real thing. So energy companies are also coming to us and, and really are now more seriously than ever before trying to do the energy transition. Hallelujah. Finally, the challenge is often that the margins are still too good. Profits are still too good, even though the writing is on the wall. So until you hit that wall, you know, it, it, it's not happening. Think Microsoft. Microsoft was making a ton of money while missing out on every big innovation but it was getting more and more difficult to sustain that business model that was making a ton of money. And then that to the credit of Steve Ballmer, he did miss out on all innovations possible, but he brought in Satya Nadella and Satya Nadella created a different culture, very open one where a new, you know, new business models could flourish. So again, it was the culture and the business models. And it's very astonishing to see those leaders who understand innovation culture, who understand business models, those are the type of leaders that are going to lead the most successful companies in the coming 10, 20, 50 years. Well, and to Nadella's credit and point, right, when he took over, he sort of issued an edict across Microsoft and said, we need to shift from a, a company of know-it-alls to a company of learn-it-alls, which is a huge point to how <laughs> Strategizer and you and your work um, equate bets. This is about learning. It's about yes. a learning ecosystem ultimately, right? Yes. And so there's one thing building on what you just said, which is interesting. I was <laughs> running a, a, a dinner 
kind of educational session for an executive board. So they were eating in a five-star hotel while I was the dinner entertainment drawing on a flip chart. <laughs> but I had fun doing it. And yeah. they wanted me to eat. And I said, no, no, I want to draw. But the, the CEO said, oh, Alex, oh, Alex, we need to turn everybody into an innovator. We need to infect everybody with the innovation virus. He said, mm, let's slow down. Actually, it's a bit different. Not everybody needs to be an innovator. What you really need to do is create a space, not physical. You don't need a $10 million building. No, you need a physical space with, with the right processes and culture and KPIs where innovators can thrive. And that is under the protection of the senior leadership. Mm -hmm. When you create that space, guess what? Innovators will innovate. So it's not about turning people into innovators in companies Soon as you have 200 people or more, you definitely have innovators and ideas in your company. That's not the problem. The problem is there is no place where those innovators can thrive. That's what we need to build. And innovators will innovate. It's not about incentives. It's not about you know helping people become innovators. The innovators are there. Can we help them get better and give them the process? And so, yes, but it's not a people problem. It's not an idea problem. So when we see idea competitions, they say, not again. What it is, is a system problem. We do not have those places where innovators can thrive. I guarantee you, there are a lot of innovators in your company. They're managers today, but they would just love to be you know, entrepreneurs within the company. Totally. Okay, last question. You've been so generous and kind with your time. Uh, it's actually about failure. And how do you believe failure acts as a part of the culture in this iterative, small bed, let's try it out, not PowerPoint to death with Excel spreadsheet mindset? Because you advocate yeah. in all your work that um, failure is not a is an option, sorry, it should be. So as the kind of Jedi master of business modeling, Alex, tell us a bit about whether it's your failure or the importance of failure really inside the organization as a uh, as a cultural trait. Yeah. So first thing is that, you know, the number of times I hear people tell me, Alex, don't talk about failure. Talk about learning. I say, no, because <laughs> that is learning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. But they don't want to use the word. They say, don't use the word failure. Talk about learning and I say, no, because we're going to stigmatize failure. So people are going to hide it. You don't need to hide it. You need mm -hmm. to just accept that you cannot get innovation without failure. Nobody wants to fail. Jeb Bezos says, says this in a nice way. Like the failure is not the goal, but it's an inevitable side consequence of innovation. <laughs> right. So the question is, how do you manage it? And here, I do want to do one drawing. Okay. Yes. Here we go. So the, the, the question is, how do you make failure a normal thing? And, and, and everybody's super comfortable with it. So rather than making one big bet, where failure is a shame and you know you lose a lot of money, you start with several small bets. We have a conviction at Strategizer where we say, let everybody start. So let's say 10 projects or ideally you know, 100 projects, let them start, but you're only gonna give them something like two to three months. Mm -hmm. After two to three months, they have to show you evidence, right? So here they present, you know, video or PowerPoint or whatever. And only when they have evidence in this first phase, the only evidence that matters is customers have that challenge, objective, maybe a budget. Yeah. And you are going to have here probably 30% of teams 
that are going to make it through this first gate. And the gate is not a beautiful PowerPoint. It's not a spreadsheet. It's can you show me the evidence? Yeah. And if you can't, no problem. No more money, but you're not punished because it's normal. Right. Same thing in the second phase. We might give them six months. They might make a so-called MVP, minimal viable product. Not something you should do in the first phase because it costs too much and you don't need to work on solutions when you don't even know if customers care. Yeah. Same thing. You're going to take 30%. And you're going to create this funnel where the winning teams with the winning ideas or business models are going to emerge. So we like to say, let everybody start. Don't try to pick the winning teams. Don't try to pick the winning ideas because you just can't know. Give them a process where they know at each phase, here's the evidence I need to show at this phase. Here's the evidence I need to show at this phase. And if I can't, no problem. You can try again next year with a new idea. And you will inevitably have the best teams and ideas that will emerge. But you need to build a system for this to happen. That's why I'm saying innovators will innovate. But today, very few companies have this space where innovators can thrive and explore their ideas without mm -hmm. having to fight the corporate antibodies. That's the key thing. You should let them innovate and focus on customers and business models, not on kind of, you know, convincing internal stakeholders and trying to, to, uh, to, uh, to get internal buy-in. That should be a given within certain constraints, of course, strategic fit um, and so on. But these systems are today still very rare. And I don't remember what the question was, but I had fun making my little drawing. Well, you did not fail. <laughs> let's, let's, let's be clear. Uh, listen, it's uh, it's a true true joy to hang out with you, as always, at this time in a recorded way with uh, the Leadership Now program. Uh, a couple points. First of all, um, last week I had Steve Blank on the show and I asked him about uh, Alex Osterwalder and he had nothing but good things to say. So I had to had to correct him. So he's okay now uh, about that. No, he's uh, just absolutely uh, thrilled with how and what you've been doing with Eves and and Strategizer. So I just wanted to make sure you heard that. Uh, but also, I just I just wanted to thank you. Like you're you're this breath of fresh air and have been for for I don't know whatever 15, 20 years now. Uh, I, I'm still a recovering uh, corporate executive, and um, I left four years ago, TELUS, but I have uh, still been on a retainer with TELUS, and I have been uh, privileged to watch our CEO, uh, Darren Enwistle, really, I believe, like uh, be the antithesis of Porter and to use techniques that, that are uh, what you're providing to the world in so much as, as an example, Darren, uh, it's a telecommunications company, but no longer because he's built out businesses in ag or ag tech. He's built out businesses in health uh, and he's built out businesses in BPO. And so it's just this kind of example where it's going against the grain and much of what you uh, describe in these small bets. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you this. If you do work with your pharma uh, clients, could you maybe get them to to maybe design a drug that is sort of the, the corporate antibody uh, drug that sort of fixes everything? Just one. We just need, just need that one, Alex. <laughs> I think that'd be a good idea. I think that'd be a good idea. But the example that you showed, again, it's all about leadership. And I do think we're in a leadership transition where we're going to see a new type of leader emerge. These entrepreneurial leaders that have a different behavior and can toggle between, you know, exploit and explore. It's not one or the other, it's and. And that's the challenge, right? And it's not about being schizophrenic. It's about creating yeah. a harmony between the two 
And as a leader, being able to toggle. And some leaders are good at it. It's a new breeder breed of leaders that are emerging. So thank you for sharing that example as well. I think it's a brilliant one. Where can we find more about Strategizer and the great Dr. Alex Osterwalder? Just go to strategizer.com. We bring we give a lot away. It's part of what we like doing. So our clients are big corporations, but we always want to give those tools away. And, and that's why millions of people use them. Because at the end of the day, we want people to work in a different way to uh, to solve problems and create value for customers and for their businesses, ultimately also for, for society. Because we have a lot of these challenges that we need to solve, you know, sustainability, poverty alleviation. So I hope these tools uh, help a little bit in, in some of those big challenges as well. Hey, they'd help better if you gave away Toblerones for free too, but that's another day for another story, uh, Alex. Uh, on behalf of everyone that's listening and watching, uh, Alex, thank you for this. Uh, everyone, you've been watching another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontfract, the great Alex Osterwalder in the house today. Go to strategizer.com for more information. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Always a real pleasure. And thank you also for your positivity. It's always inspiring to, to, to speak to you. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks, Alex. Cheers, everyone.